Anyway, I was saying, thank you for coming this morning. I know that there's all kinds of hurdles in these days to get over, and uh, it's just so encouraging that you'd make the effort and, and show up to worship God together. I, too, want to thank uh, Wayne and Bill for a couple of fellow elders here at the church for um, their clear presentation of God's Word the last couple of weeks. I was delighted and counted it a real treat to sit here amongst you and hear God's Word so clear, so clearly preached. And I hope that as a church family, we'll never take that for granted, the elders that God has gifted this church with. Honestly, in in 35 plus years of ministry, this is the exception from my experience rather than the rule. We're a relatively small church, and yet we have some outstanding leaders in our midst, and I'm so thankful. And I must say that as a participant the last couple of weeks, um, as a worshiper amongst you, I went away kind of proud of what's taking place here. You know, there's, this isn't a dog and pony show, but it is a place where we can come and meet with ordinary people who are worshiping God with songs of praise, corporate prayers, hearing from God's word, and then enjoying some great interaction with one another in the parking lot following the service. Personally, I found it clear, simple, and refreshing. And Cynthia and I are so delighted to be serving here alongside of you. And so thank you again for giving us this opportunity. We count it a privilege. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And you know the saying, it's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission. And I didn't have an opportunity to ask for permission, so I'm going to ask for forgiveness. We're not going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes today. I need one more message next week. I found this epilogue to be full of things that we need to give our attention to before we close our study. We began our study of the book of Ecclesiastes back in mid-February. And we've been confronted again and again and again with the realities of life under the sun. That is life apart from any consideration of God. We're leaving God out of the picture. And this is what life looks like. Or this is how we can assess life. As we come to the end of our study, you have to admit, is it one thing to hear the preacher's assessment? Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. It is quite another, having been invited to ponder and examine life as you and I know it, only to discover that his assessment is absolutely true. The evidence is undeniable. Life apart from God, just as the preacher stated it at the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. 
Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I didn't feel that I could improve on Philip Ryken's summary of our six-month journey through this book of Ecclesiastes. So listen as I read these highlights. Now we know that the work of vanity, that work is vanity, that there is nothing for us to gain from all our restless toil under the sun. Chapter 1, verse 3. We know that human wisdom is vanity, that it only increases our grief and pain. Chapter 1, verse 18. Whether we are wise or foolish does not even matter because in the end, we all die. Chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. We know that pleasure is vanity. Wine, women, and songs. Parks, houses, and vineyards. Gold, silver, and treasure. There is no profit under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 11. It is all vanity. Power is vanity. There is no one to comfort the tears of the oppressed. Chapter 4, verse 1. Money is vanity too, because it causes no end of trouble as we look after our possessions, which may all be lost at a moment's notice. Chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. But even if we manage to hold on to our money, it cannot satisfy our souls. Chapter 5, verse 10. Then there is the last of all vanities, which is the vanity of death. Nearly all of us will have to endure the indignities of growing old. Chapter 12, verse 1 and following. And after that, returning to the ground from which we were made, dust we are, and to dust we shall return. Chapter 3, verse 20. Not that we never have any joy. In spite of all the vanity, we can still rejoice in life's many blessings. The preacher has encouraged us to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in our work. Chapter 2, verse 24. He has told us that there is a time for healing and harvesting, time for laughing and dancing, a time for loving, and a time for making peace. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. He has told us to rejoice in the prosperity that God so richly provides. In chapter 5, verse 19, and chapter 7, verse 14. And to enjoy life with the woman whom we love, chapter 9, verse 9. There is joy in the world under the blessing of a faithful God, whether we acknowledge him or not. Yet what the preacher mainly wants us to see is how meaningless life is without God, how little joy there is under the sun if we try to leave our Creator out of his universe. And beloved, that's where chapter 12, verse 8, leaves us. But there is more. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, present an epilogue to the book. Notice verse 13, how it begins. The conclusion 
when all has been heard. The New Living Translation reads, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. The ESV reads, the end of the matter, all has been heard. So here we have the final word, the wrap-up to all that we've studied in the past six months. It's the author's last kick at the can before the book comes to an end and he signs off. So as I read these verses this morning, try to identify what the author is trying to accomplish with these final words. I'll begin reading at verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and read through to the end of the book. Notice verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. That's a, a literary technique called an inclusio. And so he begins in chapter 1 with that very phrase. It's identical the way the book ends. And so they stand as two bookends and all that he said in between. And now he wants to say his final words about all that he's written. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise men are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? you familiar with a goad? It's an instrument used by herdsmen. It's a long pointed stick. And it doesn't inflict fatal injury, but it does get the attention of animals so that he can steer them in the way that he wants them to go. So it's a long stick, like a, like a javelin, and it's pointed on the end. He would give them a poke in order to get their attention and help them to cooperate with him. The words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, he warned, the writing of many books is endless. An excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is God's word to us today. Let's pray together. Father, you have revealed yourself in the person of your one and only Son. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And yet that was so long ago, long before any of us appeared on the scene. But you also chose to provide us with an inspired, inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, supernaturally preserved written word. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What a gift. And in addition to these scriptures, as we acknowledge our sin, ask for your forgiveness, and believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, The Spirit of God indwells each and every one of us and helps us to understand and respond appropriately to this living and active Word of God. Father, may that happen this morning as we focus on these concluding verses the book of Ecclesiastes. May may this not mark the end of the matter in our lives, but rather... May our journey through this book have a lingering and continuing transform, transformational impact on each of our lives by the power of your spirit and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So what do you think? What was the author's intent as he wrote that epitaph to the book? What is he attempting to accomplish? What's he trying to do in these final verses? It was actually D.L. Moody who said it first. The Bible was not given for our information. In other words, it's not given to make us smarter, as Ray Atkinson would often say, but it's for our transformation. This epilogue has one purpose in mind. Its aim is to ensure that the book of Ecclesiastes changes your life. The author is absolutely convinced the end of the matter can change your life. He's not interested in providing more information or examining another aspect or feature or experience of life under the sun. He's done with all of that. As you read these verses, he wants you to feel the pokes of that long, sharp stick. The writer of these final words is attempting to spur you and I in the right direction, specifically with respect to your assessments. Because your assessments will either invite or repel personal transformation. There are four assessments that will determine the lingering and continuing impact of the book of Ecclesiastes in your life. And the writer of the epilogue is well aware of that. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Your assessment of the messenger, who's identified as the preacher in verse 9, is determinative. Your assessment of the messenger 
will determine, well, it'll actually either invite or repel personal transformation. So before completing your assessment of the messenger, the writer of the epilogue offers four qualifications that he wants you to consider. Number one, the preacher was a credentialed wise man. It's the first thing that the epilogue mentions. Notice in verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher, and it goes on. So first and foremost, you need to understand that this messenger, the one responsible for giving us the book of Ecclesiastes, you need to understand that he was a wise man. In ancient Israel, there were actually three recognized designations. There was the prophet, the priest, and the wise man. They're referred to in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18. Listen to this. Then the people said, the Israelites, come on, let's plot a way to stop Jeremiah. They didn't like his message, and so the best thing that they thought they could do is eliminate the messenger. Stop Jeremiah. We have plenty of priests and wise men and prophets. We don't need him to teach the word and give us advice and prophecies. Let's get rid of the wise man. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 26, these three recognized positions of influence are mentioned. They will look in vain for a vision from the prophets. They will receive no teaching from the priests and no counsel from the leaders or the wise men. Previously in our studies of Ecclesiastes, we've identified the preacher as being King Solomon. Although never mentioned specifically by name in the 12 chapters we've studied, the descriptions that are given of the author seem to point to King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we're told of the special endowment that Solomon of wisdom that Solomon received from God. Now, I realize that diplomas and the wall and tickets after successfully completing your apprenticeship does not necessarily guarantee anything. But credentialing can be helpful in building a person's credibility. Here, the preacher was recognized as a wise man. He's not only a wise man, but continuing on in verse 1, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. He was a teacher with a track record. Think of the teachers that have left a significant impact in your life over the years. It's not always what they taught from the front of the classroom either, is it? Teachers can come from all walks of life. Parents, Sunday school teachers, coaches, the list can go on and on. They come and go and leave a mark that can last for a lifetime. Sometimes, without even knowing, they've left an impression behind. I have a friend that sends me the same text every few months. 
as an expression of his gratitude for the time that we were able to spend together. It reads, Many people walk in and out of your life, but a true friend will leave footprints in your heart. Solomon had a history of sharing what he knew in ways that left footprints in people's hearts. He was a wise man with a reputation of being a reputable teacher. And notice, continuing on in verse 1, he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Let me just say that he was published. And I'll have to explain that. During my short time in the world of academia, not as a student, but as, a, as an administrator slash professor, I was introduced to the expectation placed on professors to write peer-reviewed articles that then would be published in credible scholarly journals. That was especially true for newer professors who were trying to become tenure professors. Once a professor is tenured, he, well, it it's just offers both status and job security. So most professors are looking to be tenured. Admittedly, as I worked with these professors, being tenured or being credentialed in that way did not necessarily mean they were effective teachers. But they were definitely bright and committed students, researchers, and effective writers. That is what I'm referring to when I say that Solomon was published. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 32, reports that King Solomon composed some 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Then, of course, we have the Word of God, God's inspired Word, which includes some of Solomon's contributions, namely Ecclesiastes and most of the book of Proverbs. It's interesting to note that both of those books are found in a section of Scripture that we often refer to as wisdom literature. So the preacher was a wise man. He was a reputable teacher. He was published. And now notice verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. New Living Translation reads, the teacher sought to find just the right words to express truth correctly, clearly. And so he worked to be an effective truth teller. He was sensitive to his audience, not just looking to disseminate information, but he wanted to communicate the truth with words that were inviting, palatable, easy for people to understand, and clear. I know, what's like, I know what that's like. I spend hours every week trying to find just the right words to express truth clearly. Haddon Robinson, the supervisor of the DMIN program that I was involved in, would often say something like, thinking is hard work. 
Thinking about thinking is the hardest work of all. And that's what's involved when you're preparing to preach. King Solomon was an articulate and committed truth teller. He was attentive to his audience while absolutely committed to telling the truth with integrity. All this to say that the author of Ecclesiastes was not a used car salesman in the derogatory sense of that label. Or a huckster posing as a TV evangelist. Neither was he the kind of false teacher that the Apostle Paul mentioned again and again in many of his New Testament letters. No, the preacher was a credentialed wise man, a reputable teacher. He was published and an articulate and committed truth teller. All that serves to increase his credibility. This epilogue at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes is serving as an endorsement. It intends to, without apology, influence your assessment of the messenger. You may not buy what Ecclesiastes is selling, but it cannot be on the basis of your assessment of the messenger. The preacher's credibility is undeniable and indisputable. And that's important because your assessment of the messenger will either invite or repel personal transformation. And not just your assessment of the messenger, but your assessment of the message. Look again at verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is as wearing to the body. Your assessment of the preacher's message as presented in the book of Ecclesiastes will either invite or repel personal transformation. Now notice in this epilogue is now speaking in general terms. It's the words of wise men. A group to which this preacher certainly belonged. By the way, that phrase, the words of wise men, it only appears four times in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 1. Well, let me begin reading at verse... Let's turn there. Proverbs chapter 1. Just flip back a book. Go to the beginning. Let me begin reading at verse 1. These are the Proverbs of Solomon... David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. It's interesting. Someone has said that, suggested that the book of Proverbs begins where the book of Ecclesiastes leaves off. Their purpose is to teach people, 
to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge, and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. By exploring the meaning of these Proverbs and parables, the words of the wise, there's our phrase, and their riddles. Phrase is found again in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 17. Listen to the words of the wise. Apply your heart to my instruction. Also in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Now, having already established that the preacher is a wise man, here are four truths that are associated or related or characterize the words of wise men. Number one, they are motivational and corrective. The words of wise men are not necessarily always warm and cuddly. Don't, miss, don't dismiss them just because they make you uncomfortable. Remember that passage we just read in Jeremiah? Let's get rid of the messenger because we don't like the message. Remember, they can be like goads in verse 11. We've already talked about that long pointed stick. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Remember that schoolyard rhyme? It's not true. They do hurt. And so at times do the words of wise men. God is using them to keep us on the narrow way that leads to life. A life that is being lived for his glory and for our good. The words of the wise may be used to inflict pain. And in those times, in your discomfort, that is not the time to reject the words, dismiss or ignore the message. Just because you don't like what you're hearing, do not reject the message. They wanted to eliminate the messenger, remember in Jeremiah? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we used it in our prayer as we prepared to look at the scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Did you catch that? The scripture becomes a goad when we need reproof and correction. And chances are, on those occasions, while we're receiving the pointed end of that long stick, always for our best interest, our assessment may not be at that moment that this is profitable. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11 assures us that no discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful, but afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. The words of the wise are motivational and corrective. Verse 11 continues, And masters of these collections are like well-driven nails, are like another simile 
the words of wise men are stabilizing, like well-driven nails. They develop men and women of, connect, of conviction, people who know why they believe, know what they believe, and why they believe it. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wanted believers to understand that Jesus himself has given gifted individuals to the church, and I'm quoting now, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And verse 14 goes on to say, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. No, we're to be well-embedded nails. The words of wise men, like those found in the book of Ecclesiastes, can nail us down so that we become men and women of conviction, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice the end of verse 11. They are given by one, and notice it's a capital S, shepherd. And that capital S is found in both the NASB and the ESV translations, indicating that the translators thought that this was a direct reference to God. Walter Kaiser offers the following explanation. Only one true source of the book could cause Solomon, the human author, to have such a high estimation of this book of Ecclesiastes. The one shepherd, capital S. This can only mean Jehovah, or more accurately, Yahweh, the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 80, verse 1. He is the real source of the words of this book. Not cynicism, not skepticism, not worldliness, not any of these sources. He gave the ideas and he aided Solomon in the composition of Ecclesiastes. By the way, Psalm 80, verse 1 reads, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. The words of wise men originate with God and are therefore authoritative. Look at verse 12 now. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotions to books is wearying to the body. Beyond what? Beyond the words of wise men given by one shepherd. Beloved, the, the author's not calling us to burn our books or to avoid any kind of study. But he is calling us to give preference to the scriptures, God's written revelation. The words of wise men given by one, the, by one shepherd, and we're, now I'm referring to the Bible, the entire canon of scripture, are sufficient. They're absolutely sufficient. Here's a definition for the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. 
Scripture is sufficient in that it is the only inspired, inerrant, and therefore final authority for Christians for faith and godliness, with all other authorities being subservient to Scripture. Did you hear that? It is the only inspired, inerrant, and therefore final authority for Christians for faith and godliness, with all other authorities being subservient to Scripture. I find that in evangelicalism, we give that lip service to a large degree. What it's saying is that all that we need to live a life to please God is found in this book. Now, other books can be helpful, but this is the book. We have everything that we need in these pages to order our lives in a way that will please God. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We've talked about it a couple of times already this morning. We've prayed it and we've mentioned it earlier. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Many of you have memorized it probably. All scripture is inspired of God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and training in righteousness. And often we stop there. But look at verse 17. So that purpose, the man of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you've not highlighted or underlined that purpose statement found in verse 17, now is probably a good time to do it. So that the man of God may be adequate, man or woman, equipped for every good work. You may want to circle every. It's every good work. Essentially, the scriptures are all that we need. J.B. Phillips translates this same verse this way. The scriptures are the comprehensive equipment. I like that. The comprehensive equipment of the man of God and fit him fully for all branches of its work. It's all inclusive. But left sitting on the shelf, it accomplishes absolutely nothing. It requires personal, intimate, and sustained exposure. Remember the navigator's hand illustration? You want to get a firm grip on the Word of God? Hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating. Those are the disciplines that will give you a firm grip on God's Word. And allow us to filter all other things that we're hearing and reading. All other inputs need to be filtered through this book. The preacher was a credentialed wise man. That made his words the words of wise men. Words that are motivational, corrective, stabilizing, able to develop men and women of conviction, authoritative, 
Because ultimately, they're words, they're God's words, words from God's mouth. And finally, they're sufficient. The epilogue is serving as an endorsement of both the message and the messenger that is intended to influence our assessments. And that's important because your assessment will either invite or repel personal transformation. The epilogue addresses two more assessments that will determine the transformational power of the book of Ecclesiastes in our lives. Rather than push through, I chose to extend this series to next week. I think that um, the imperatives that we're going to look at are just so crucial and need our attention before we move forward. The way I see it, God can reveal it. Wise men can write it. I can do my best to preach it. But it's your assessment. It's your assessment that will either invite or repel personal transformation. But know this, the end of the matter, the end of the matter can change your life. Let's pray. Father, you're a gracious and merciful God. You're so patient with us. Your word claims your faithfulness is renewed every morning. That means with the dawn of every day, your faithfulness is there, waiting to display itself in each of our lives. May that truth spur us on to greater faithfulness. Additionally, we have the indwelling spirit, the inspired scriptures, the fellowship of believers in the context of a local church, a local Bible-believing church, all available resources, gifts from your hand, enabling us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Thank you for the Rock Community Church. Thank you for the opportunity to gather and to study this book of Ecclesiastes. May we become like well-driven nails, stable, people of conviction in a world that is being tossed to and fro by the waves of foolishness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.